Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today we feature John Stott. Born in 1921, he was well known throughout the world for his writings and godly influence in the global church. Stott passed away July 27th in 2011. He leaves behind a legacy that continues to expand through the power of God's Word. John Stott stressed that we care and value God's creation. From an early age, he was an avid bird watcher and photographer, taking his binoculars and camera with him on all of his travels. He saw nearly 2,700 of the world's 9,000 species of birds. He even published a book, The Birds Our Teachers, illustrated with his own photographs. He was an honorary chaplain to the Queen from 1959 to 1991. John Stott was a pastor to pastors, a servant of the global church, and an author of more than 50 books. Today, John Stott presents a study on freedom from guilt and freedom from the judgment and condemnation of God. This is the first of a series of addresses on the whole subject of freedom. There are two main reasons why I'm glad to be talking on this subject, and I'd like to outline these first. The first reason is that freedom is on everybody's lips today. People are not only talking about it, increasing numbers of people seem to be devoting their lives to a quest for freedom. For some people it's national freedom by which they understand emancipation from the domination of a colonial power. For others it is the civil rights movement, the quest for personal and civil liberty, the right of religious and racial minorities to the same privileges before the law as the majority enjoy, whether in voting or in housing or in education. For others, it's a question of economic freedom, freedom from hunger, from poverty, from unemployment. But underlying all these, and in some ways more important than them all, is personal freedom. There are many who feel frustrated, unfulfilled, and unfree today. They're seeking deliverance from a slavery which they do not find it easy to identify. So some of them take a trip on drugs in their search for reality. Others imagine that freedom is to be found in independence of conventional ideas, that is, in free thought, or in independence of conventional morality, um, which they might term free love. At all events, this is the first reason why I'm talking on the subject. Freedom is on everybody's lips today. Everybody's thinking and talking about freedom. The second reason is that freedom is a great Christian word. It occurs frequently in the New Testament that Jesus Christ is portrayed as a saviour or a liberator. We're told, for example, that he came to proclaim release to captives and to set at liberty the oppressed. He himself added that if the Son, he himself, the Son of God, sets you free, you will be free indeed. 
And Paul, in one of his letters, issued an appeal to his readers to stand firm in the liberty with which Christ has set you free. For those who find the word salvation embarrassing or even meaningless, emancipation or freedom would be a good substitute. For to be saved by Christ, we believe, is to be set free. It is to enjoy what Paul called the glorious liberty of the children of God. So I want to ask in this series of addresses precisely what is this liberty and how may it be secured? In answer to the first question, it is a significant fact that most people think and talk of freedom in negative terms. Dictionaries, for example, tend to define freedom negatively. One dictionary indicates that it is the absence of hindrance, restraint, confinement, repression. Another dictionary says that the adjective free means not enslaved, not imprisoned, unrestricted, unrestrained, unhampered. And the dictionaries in defining freedom negatively are only reflecting common usage. Let's think of some of the areas in which people talk of freedom. Free trade, for example, is commerce in which no customs duty is levied on imports. A free press is a press that is not subject to government interference. A free church is a church that is free from state control. Free thought is independent thought, acknowledging no external authority. Free will is the exercise of choice without outside constraint. And I suppose a free fight is a fight with no rules. In all these areas in which we talk of freedom, we are thinking of freedom negatively, of the absence of something. But I want to begin by urging that freedom should never be conceived in purely negative terms. The true cry for freedom today is not merely for deliverance from some tyranny. It is a cry for deliverance into or for a full and meaningful life which such liberty brings. I realize that there are some people talking about liberty who don't articulate uh, what they mean by it or what they want to be freed for. There are others who are so preoccupied with the destruction of the status quo that they haven't begun to think about what they want to take its place. But again, let me give you some examples. A true desire for a free country is that once it has been delivered from foreign colonial rule, the people should be free for their own nationhood and for participation in the government of their own nation. Again, a free press is one that, having been freed from all external control, is now free for the publication of truth without any bias or suppression. Again, freedom from racial discrimination is a desire to be free for the self-respect and the dignity of a fully human existence. We can never understand the meaning of freedom unless we ask what we want to be free for. Let me go on on racial discrimination for a moment. 
You will know, I'm sure, of Malcolm X, one of the leaders of the Black Muslim Brotherhood in America before he was assassinated a few years ago. And in the autobiography of Malcolm X, he speaks of what he calls the Earth's most explosive and pernicious evil, which is racism. And uh, he outlined some of the causes uh, of it, and one can see some of the causes of his own white-hot rage ab uh, about it. He speaks of slavery, of economic dependence, but above all he writes of humiliation, owing to what he describes as the American white man's malignant superiority complex. The problem, he goes on, is not civil rights, but human rights. Respect as human beings. That's what American black masses want. That's the true problem, he goes on. The black masses want not to be shrunk from as though they were plague-ridden. They want not to be walled up in slums, in the ghettos, like animals. They want to live in an open, free society in which they can walk with their heads up like men and women. That, I think, is a good example of a desire for uh, freedom from racial discrimination in order to be free as human beings, to enjoy the self-respect and the dignity of a fully human existence. Thus, to sum up, nationhood is denied when a country is not free, truth is denied when the press is not free, and the very nature of human beings is denied when a racial minority is not free. In each of these examples, it is necessary to define what it is for which freedom is desired before we are able to discern the enemies and the tyrants from which freedom must be sought. What is this something? This something for which freedom is desired is, I suggest, the nature of the thing itself. Freedom, personal freedom, is freedom to be oneself. Either to be what one is by nature, or what one should be according to one's nature. God himself is the only being who enjoys perfect freedom. His freedom is not absolute, in the sense that he is free to do absolutely anything whatsoever. Yet it is perfect freedom, in the sense that God is free to do anything that he wills or pleases to do. The freedom of God is freedom to be always entirely himself. The one thing that God cannot do and will not do is to deny himself, that is to act in a manner that is contrary to his own nature. To do this for God would not be freedom, it would be self-destruction. If God were free to deny himself, he would no longer be free, because he would no longer be himself. What then is true of God the Creator is true in a secondary sense of all created things and beings. The freedom of every creature depends upon the nature which God has given it, and it is only free when it is living according to its nature and fulfilling its nature freely. Take a fish. God created all fish, of course, to live and to thrive in water. Water is the element in which alone a fish fulfills itself and finds freedom. Imagine you have a goldfish bowl in your home. 
while a goldfish may find the bowl or the tank in which it is restricting its freedom. Not because it's in the water, but because this element of water is very limited. It, there's only a certain uh, cubic capacity in the tank. If the fish were able to leap out of the bowl into a pond or into a river, it would increase its freedom because it would be having more of the element in which alone it is free. But if it were to leap out of the goldfish bowl onto the carpet, then, of course, it would find not life or liberty, but death, because it would be out of its element. Now, let's turn from the fish to the human being. Like all other creatures, men and women can only grasp the meaning of freedom and can only find personal freedom in the light of their nature, of what God made them and meant them to be. We can identify the tyrannies from which men and women need to be freed only when we have seen the purpose for which they have been made and the element in which they were made to live and in which they can find fulfillment. It's a good example of the way in which uh, theology must inevitably determine our practice. Well, the Bible tells us the nature of man, the element in which he was made to live. <clears throat> man was made for love. That is to say, he was made for personal relationships. Love is the element in which man lives and thrives, just as much as water is the element in which the fish lives and thrives. For God made man for love. He made him a spiritual being, he made him a social being, and man fulfills his destiny and finds freedom only if he is loving both God and his fellow men. So then, we may say that man finds his freedom when he finds himself as he was made and meant to be. His freedom is not a freedom from all restraint, so that he can do what he likes when he likes. This would be to deny himself, to deny his true nature. His freedom is rather a freedom from all those restraints which hinder him from being himself as God meant him to be. More precisely, our human freedom is not freedom from all responsibility to God and to our fellow men in order to live for ourselves. It's rather freedom from myself and from everything else which hinders me from living for God and for other people. Michael Ramsey, the Archbishop of Canterbury, gave a series of four addresses in the University of Cambridge during Lent in 1970, subsequently published in a little book called Freedom, Faith and the Future. And in the first sermon, the Archbishop posed the question, we know what we want to, to free men from. Do we know what we want to free men for? And he goes on to answer his own question. Our striving for those freedoms which most palpably stir our feelings, he says, that is freedom from persecution, from arbitrary imprisonment, from racial discrimination, from crippling hunger and poverty. Uh, striving for these freedoms, he says, should always be in the context of the more radical and revolutionary issue of the freeing of man from self and for the glory of God. 
He goes on that such freedom is seen perfectly in Jesus alone. He is free from someone and free for someone. He is free from himself and he is free for God. Again, the Archbishop writes, the self is free from self because it is free into another, the Father, God. His definition of freedom is, my freedom is not my power to do what I choose as and when I choose it. My freedom is rather my ability to choose an end and a goal and to unify my faculties in the, consist in the consistent pursuit of that end or goal. I want to suggest now that all this is summed up admirably in a little phrase of the Apostle Paul's that comes in his letter to the Romans, chapter 8, verse 21, when he speaks of the glorious liberty of the children of God. It's quite true that this text refers to the future. It refers to the liberty of the glory of the children of God that we shall enjoy in the next world, when one day we shall be set free from the limitations of our mortality, set free from our proneness to disease, decay, death, and our fallen nature, this is the liberty of the glory of the children of God. But we can begin to enjoy it now. And this liberty to be enjoyed by the children of God is liberty to be the children of God and live as God's children. I do not hesitate to say that the most fundamental of all liberties is the liberty of the children of God. We're only free when we're free to love God as his children, to serve him, his creation, and his family, to enjoy him as our Father and all the good things which his fatherhood brings. This liberty then begins now but it is hindered by all manner of tyrannies. And I want in this series of addresses to isolate five of the major tyrannies which hinder us from enjoying freedom as the children of God. The first that I'm going to uh, talk about now in a few minutes is the judgment of God. The second is the opinions of men. The third is the bondage of self. The fourth is the fear of evil. And the fifth is the bondage of decay. And these are five tyrannies which inhibit us from enjoying the freedom which God's children should enjoy. So let us take this first one, freedom from guilt, freedom from the judgment and the condemnation of God. Let me read you some verses at the beginning of Romans 8. Romans 8 verses 1 to 4. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free, notice the word free, from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, sending his son, his own son, in the likeness of sinful flesh and forth sin, God condemned sin in the flesh, that is, in the flesh of Jesus, in order that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This, then, is freedom from the condemnation of God. Christian freedom, here in verse 2, is defined as being set free from the law of sin 
and death. The law of God, the moral law, the law of Moses, is called a law of sin and death because in itself it made demands without offering power. It provoked sin and brought death. So it was a law of sin and death. Therefore Christian freedom begins not at Mount Sinai, which is the place of condemnation, but at Mount Calvary, which is the place where Jesus Christ bore our condemnation so that we might receive forgiveness. And no man is truly free, when you come to think of it, who does not know himself forgiven. Christian freedom begins with freedom from guilt and from a guilty conscience. It is the freedom of the children of God to look God in the face, to look into the face of their reconciled God and call him Father. And without this forgiveness, this enjoyment of being a child of God, there is no human freedom. When Paul calls this freedom from the law, he does not mean freedom from the law's authority. On the contrary, here in verse 4 of Romans 8, he says that we are delivered from condemnation in order that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. We're not delivered from the authority of the law, but we are delivered from its condemnation. We're not delivered from the requirement to obey it, but we are delivered from the judgment which falls on those who disobey it. We're set free from prison under the law's sentence of death, and we're free to be God's forgiven, reconciled, and adopted sons and daughters. I think then we may say that this freedom as a child of God was never better exemplified than in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is the perfect example of it. No human being has ever been free like Jesus Christ. But his was the freedom to love and to obey the Father and not to disobey him. He said, for example, it's recorded in John 8, 29, I always do what is pleasing to him. It's freedom to please God, not freedom to please myself. Let me conclude then with these two suggestions. Firstly, let's learn to develop in our minds positive ideas of freedom. It's very naive when talking about freedom to talk only of the tyrannies which inhibit freedom. It's much more mature to define for what it is that we desire to be free. And these tyrannies only become tyrannical. We only see how tyrannical they are when we understand the nature of the freedom for which we were made, and then we shall see the tyrannies from which we need to be delivered. That's the first thing. Develop in our minds positive ideas of freedom. What is it for which I desire to be free? And the second thing is that we need to learn to prize very highly this first aspect of freedom of which I've spoken, freedom from guilt, freedom from condemnation, freedom to live as the forgiven child of God. It is a wonderful and a beautiful freedom. And when we prize it, it will keep us close to the cross. It will fill our hearts with gratitude and praise to God. 
It'll move us to keep our conscience clear as the noonday sun. Because any sin which remains on our conscience, unacknowledged, unconfessed, unrepented and unforgiven, spoils our freedom as the children of God. So let's pray for an increasingly sensitive conscience which recognizes instantly the slightest cloud that arises between God and us. A conscience that cannot endure any estrangement between God and us and which prompts us to confess our sin at once in order to be restored to his fellowship. How wise was the Apostle Paul to, to say, it's recorded in Acts 24:16, I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards God and men. Only so can we enjoy the first freedom, which is freedom from guilt and condemnation, the first freedom of the children of God. You've been listening to John Stott. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.